Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. You are probably planning for an uneventful birth, but babies have a way of coming into the world whatever way they need to. And so it's good to be equipped with the knowledge of what common complications can happen during labour. Hannah Darlin is a professor at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Good morning. What do you consider to be an uncomplicated birth? Look, I think we've got to stop again dichotomizing everything into, you know, low risk, high risk, uncomplicated, complicated, because every woman has her own individual birth experience. And even uncomplicated birth can seem really huge deal to women and very complex births can seem not such a big deal to women. So I've, after 30 years of this business, <laughs> I've kind of learned that it's whatever the woman says it is and okay. let's, let's work with that. But generally, when you look at the textbooks and you look at how we gather statistics, it's a woman who starts labour on her own, progresses on her own, has the vaginal birth without needing instruments and, um, you know, gives birth to her baby and her baby is is well. Uh, that would be considered to be an uncomplicated birth, and it usually would be preceded by a pregnancy that has also been uncomplicated. Okay. So I've got a few questions, and this has come to me from Google. This is what Google says might be complicated. What happens if a woman's water breaks early? Any baby that is a woman who's in labour or gives birth or has her waters break before 37 weeks is considered preterm. We consider term from 37 through to 42 is considered term. So if a water breaks early, we call that preterm rupture of membranes. And one of the one of the two things happen here. One is you say, well, why did the water break? So is there an infection? Is the baby saying to us, I need to come now because actually I'm smarter than all of you out there and I know what's going on in here. And, you know, we have to respect that. Is this just what's going to happen for the woman. So the first thing that we would do is say, always come in and get checked out if you think your water's break, broken. And if you if your water's broken earlier, come in and get checked out. There's, yeah. What is the water? Yeah, what <laughs> I can't is believe the... I don't actually know that. <laughs> it's the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby. And it's produced by the placenta and the membranes. And it is amazing. It's, 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 it, it surrounds the baby. It allows the baby to move. It keeps the baby's skin in good condition. And through pregnancy, as you get towards the end, it gets less and less and less. So you have more and more baby. And there's a couple of reasons for that. That's probably how labor gets triggered as well. It's showing the placenta winding down and saying, right, my job's done, ready for you to exit. But it also helps the baby drop down in the pelvis. So, yeah, the waters are pretty amazing. And is that why some women will find they have like a river and others may not even notice their water is broken? And some women do have a river. Um, some women have a lot of water. That can be associated with some complications or it can be completely normal. Other women don't have a lot of water. That cane can be associated with complications or it can be normal. But if you're 42 weeks, like I went with all my pregnancies, there ain't much water left. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens with that um, if the water breaks early? You were saying that it keeps the baby's skin healthy. Is it unsafe for them once the waters have broken if you don't go into labour? Yeah. So again, early, if we talk about if a ba- if waters break at 37 weeks, that's not a big deal. As long as baby's well and mum's well, the baby will still be pretty okay. If the water breaks at 24 weeks, that's a very different thing. Because, of course, the water's also part of, well, a lot of people don't realise the baby breathes in there. 
So the baby's breathing in, it's putting, getting water into its lungs, it, it's constantly moving its body, it's exercising. So by not having a lot of water, actually things like your lungs won't develop as well, your body won't develop as well. You can't really keep growing a small baby. The concern about any waters breaking is that once you've broken that seal, your risk of infection increases. So a very little baby where we're like really worried that one or two extra days or even a week may help it, we would probably keep a woman in a monitor closely. But a woman who's at 37 weeks, where the baby will be fine, then uh, you know, after 18 or 24 hours, if nothing's happened, we'd sort of probably recommend she gets induced to reduce infection. Okay. And does length of labour ever come into what you would consider to be straightforward or potentially um, a, a, not a great situation for mum and Belle? Yeah, and this is where the whole science has been turned on its head in the last couple of years. In fact, the WHO came out last year with a new document, said kind of, sorry, everyone, we got it wrong. We decided that women progressed at one centimetre an hour. Um, sorry, we got it wrong. The research that underpinned that wasn't very good. We've now redone it and we've decided that actually labour is much longer on average, um, that we shouldn't really consider labour established until about five centimetres. So we've been doing an awful lot of things to women at three to four centimetres when they actually aren't in established labour. So uh, the, if you look at the textbooks, they'll say, you know, on average 12 to 12 hours for the first baby, six hours for the second. Well, <laughs> I, I'm yet to meet this average woman because yes. it can be, you know, it can be one hour, it can be 36, 37 hours. For me now, having been a midwife so long, what's important is how's the mum and how's the baby and what does she want? Does she want to keep going? Is she managing okay? Is the baby coping? So we have a lot more now individualised approach to the length of labor. There also is, just to put this in for people who like, you know, I had one of those long labors. We've now got some evidence that labor is actually really important for switching on your genes to have a healthy response. So we're now actually seeing some evidence that people who have very, very quick labors don't have the same switching on of genes to do with immunity that women who have very long labors. So oh, I'm glad to see there's a, there's a benefit. <laughs> there's a benefit to that. <laughs> and remember, number one is always longer. Number one's the hard go. I always say to women, if you could pick a birth, you'd pick number two. But unfortunately, you've got to have number one to get there. <laughs> Very true. What about the position of the baby? When is it something that midwives or obstetricians have to get involved with? So we tend to say that around 36, 37 weeks, we'd like to start seeing the head go down. And if the head doesn't, isn't down at that point, then we would probably start discussing with you the option of external cephalic version, which simply means that we find a, an experienced obstetrician. We've got some fantastic ones in Sydney, by the way, that do a beautiful job. It's almost like watching an opera, watching them. Um, and they turn the baby with their hands on the outside of your, your tummy and turn the baby so that the baby's head down. We know that it's better if the baby's head down. Things are less complicated. Uh, if the baby doesn't turn and it wants to stay breech, and some babies do, then we have a discussion with you as to whether you want to have a cesarean or you want to have a vaginal breech birth. And then we'd strongly recommend that you go to somebody with the skills. Unfortunately, because less and less doctors are doing it, they're losing their skills. But we have two amazing obstetricians in Sydney that are highly skilled and you'd be referred there if you're a public patient. In the private sector, generally you don't get given much of a choice. What about when the baby starts in the right position with their head down, stays down but 
turns during labour. Yeah, so the baby, what the way we want the baby to be down is to be nice and tucked with his chin on its chest, so it's really flexed in. And the reason for that is that the 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 back part of the head, when you do that, is the smallest diameter, and we all want the smallest bit to oh, go yeah. through. That's a priority for <laughs> for us women. But sometimes what babies do is instead of coming going down and there, if you think about a baby's um, chin and mouth, it should face your bum right? Uh, That's the ideal position. We call that an anterior position. And in that position, the baby's most likely to flex its head. The the human body, most pelvis is the best designed for that position. And the baby comes out easiest. But sometimes the baby goes down facing up to the sky. Sometimes it begins facing the right way and turns during labor. And sometimes they do a little bit of having a look around, which means their head's no longer nicely flexed. And they can even not just look around, but they do something we call asynclitic. And they look around, they stick their head on the side as though they're kind of gazing off into the the east or west. And that's not... That is really unpleasant for women. Baby, what are you doing? <laughs> there are some things we can do. We do know rebozo works very well. So that's a big scarf that the midwife will wrap around your uterus and she will actually get you to lean over, swing over, and she will start to swing you back and forth. And these things can help to shift the baby's position, moving around, being upright, all those things can help. Wow. And from what you've seen as a midwife, those rhythms that you're talking about women doing, when they're in labour... Do their bodies respond? Do you think women's bodies respond to what is needed to get the baby out the best way? Or is it something that we just don't talk about enough anymore so we don't know what we're doing? So I think that's probably the best question of the interview because women's bodies are incredibly clever, but women's bodies will only function with that whole hormonal orchestra going in synchrony if they feel safe. And protected. So what we need to do first is continuity care. Make sure you have a midwife you know so that that person in the room is not a stranger that you're looking out for and you can get down into what I call motherland, which is that wonderful space of, oh, I don't care. Um, I have no idea how long it's been. I'm in this really wonderful drug state that nature provides. But if you have people keeping on walking through the door that are strangers, if you have bright lights, we know all these things take you out of motherland. You know, everybody knows that if you've got a cat giving birth, where do they go? They go into the linen cupboard where it's quiet and we leave them alone. We respect the cat, but we don't respect the woman. And we are at at the heart of it. We are animals and we are highly evolved to be in that dark, quiet, trusting, protected space. So if we do that, women's bodies... There's absolutely nothing wrong with women's bodies. But unfortunately, in our surveillance society, we've forgotten some of the basic needs of a mother in labor. Talk to me about the umbilical cord, because sometimes um, things can happen there. And I must admit, I have heard of babies um, having it around their neck and that not ending well. And I must admit, I was surprised. Like I thought, isn't there some way to stop that? Yes, so the umbilical cord is that amazing pipeway that takes the blood from the mother through to the baby and returns the waste. So it is the lungs while the baby's inside because the baby's not doing that breathing of oxygen to oxygenate. The more the baby moves, the longer the cord is. So if you have a really active baby, the cord tends to be longer. If you have a baby that doesn't move as much, the cord tends to be shorter. So some women have babies and they have very short cords. And other women have, honestly, I've seen loops and loops and loops and loops. (laughs) Like you could almost do a skipping rope with it. (laughs) 
And in that process, sometimes if you've got a very active baby and a long cord, that baby will get itself, you know, wrapped up like a sushi. I've seen a baby completely wrapped up like a sushi. Wow. But I've also seen them come out absolutely no problems. So it isn't just about having the cord. The cord around the neck is really, really common. I'd say about 30% of babies that we catch have got the cord around the neck. Most of them you can loop it over the head. Sometimes it's really tight and we need to cut it before the baby's born, you know, when it's sitting there just at the head out. So... There's a lot of anxiety around it. Yes, sometimes the cord is the cause of a, of a baby dying, but the majority of the time the cord is incredibly smart because it's made of Wharton's jelly. And Wharton's jelly is basically like, um, it's like an airbag around the important vessels that run through it so this airbag is surrounding that cord so even when the baby you know sometimes sucks on it or squeezes it or whatever it's got this protective airbag around it that most of the time keeps babies well how common are tears during labor Yes. So this is probably one of women's greatest fears. I think if I were to list the greatest fears women have, pain and tearing are two really big fears. So really common. So for your first baby, around 70 to 80% of women will experience some tearing. But having said that, you often aren't aware during the birth that you've torn. And then often you may not need stitches or sometimes just a couple of stitches. So tears range from a couple of what we call grazes, which may be on your, your labia or in your vagina that won't need stitches, to um, very shallow tears, to deeper tears, and then to the rarer but more severe tears which go right down to your back passage, and they're, they're, they're much rarer. And in about one in ten cases, um, the midwife or doctor would recommend a cut, which is called an episiotomy. But you must always be asked and give consent to that because it's it's a surgery. The human body is amazing. So we know that, that the tear often occurs directly down and it occurs in almost a, a zigzaggy way because it goes between tissues and things. And then when you put it back together, it heals beautifully. For some women that doesn't happen and so what you want to do is make sure you have a skilled provider there repairing it and if it doesn't feel right and if it's painful don't put up with it. Get help. It's not painful that after six weeks you still can't sit down. That is not normal and there's a lot of women that put up and struggle in silence because they think it's part of birth. Yes it's part of birth but the pain and morbidity should not be. What about if you're going on to have a second child and you tore or had an episiotomy with the first? Is there anything you need to be thinking about there? So there are a couple of things you can do to reduce perineal trauma. And one of them is what we call perineal massage, which is where either you or your partner put a couple of fingers into your vagina and make sure they're washed and get a bit of you know, almond oil. And you basically press down until you feel the sting and you hold it there for a few minutes. And every day you do that a bit more and that will help to reduce um, tearing and the need for an episiotomy. We also know during labor, and that was my PhD, um, was a randomized controlled trial into using a hot cloth or a warm cloth on your bum we know that reduces by about half the worst kind of tear that a woman can get so there's some little strategies to to use that can reduce tearing if you've had it for the first time does not mean you'll have it for the second time so by the time you've had the first baby probably 50 60 percent of women having subsequent babies don't have a tear so it gets better and better and better and you know once you've got up to number six usually they're walking out <laughs> <laughs> um is there anything else i i've missed that you would consider worth talking about in terms of labor 
No, I think I think you've covered everything, but I would say fear is probably the greatest enemy of birth and you know, if I could encourage women to really go there, talk about it to their to their midwife or their doctor, get a midwife you know have that journey so you know the person who's coming to the birth, you know the person who's giving you postnatal advice because what we know from that many, many international trials is you have less intervention, you're more satisfied, higher rates of breastfeeding and it costs less. So really we know that's the gold standard that all women should be offered. Hannah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hannah Darlin is a professor at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.